Well, good morning. Welcome everyone to church this morning. Glad you could. You woke up and uh, opened your eyes by the grace of God. And uh, let's just get ready to learn about God's word. Um, I, I need to start off though. I do need to give a special shout out to Torrance Little League. Yeah, who. Uh, it's going to the World Series. The first time L.A. County has made it to the World Series. I heard that the team this morning is on a private jet flying to Williamsport, Pennsylvania to represent us. And our very own uh, Ollie Turner and his son Gibson Turner are going to be there competing. We will pray that they bring God glory when they bring home the trophy. Amen? <laughs> All right. With... You know, speaking of Little League, actually, I want to start off this message by showing you a little umpire. Check out this video of this little umpire as we open up this message. Vincent is such a fan of umpires. Every game, he becomes one. He stands in the front row here at the Carolina Mudcat Stadium near Raleigh, copying their calls and mimicking their moves. He gets so into character, it's hard not to play along. For example, on this day, the manager even came over to him to report a lineup change. Initially, we thought maybe it was like a little bit of a phase type of thing. These are his parents. It's a two-year phase at this point. (laughs) And they say it's not just on game days. It's virtually every day. At home, he stands in front of the TV and does the same routine. He sleeps next to baseballs autographed by umpires. He even visited an umpire school where he learned the proper way to call a strike, which apparently isn't to say strike. What umpires say, hoit. Why do they say hoit? That's what they all do. What is out? Out. Okay. Ball is? Ball. Strike is? (laughs) I think he wanted to throw me out of this interview. (laughs) Hoit. This is the deal. He's a great kid, which may be part of the reason he's attracted to the profession. It's leadership, rule following, um, fairness. All those qualities are kind of who he is. Obviously, Vincent would like to grow up to be an umpire someday. But even if he doesn't, hopefully he will retain the values cherished by referees of all stripes. And hopefully he will keep his room just as clean as his imaginary home plate. Isn't that awesome? That's cool. I'm sure everybody on the field and all the players, all the umps love a kid like that with so much passion out there in the stands. But as much as they might love seeing a little umpire like that, it'd be foolish for any player on the field to actually go off of his calls. Like if from the stands that kid goes, you're out of there. No player is going to actually walk off the field because he just got called out by the little ump. Like, I mean, as cute as he is, that's all he is. It's cute. But he's not authoritative. He has no authority, right? And so nobody is going to go off of his judgments or his calls. Everybody wants to be an ump. Everybody wants to be a ref. Even beyond the kid in the stands, you got parents, you got fans, you got friends of the players. Have you ever been to a sporting event, basketball game, football game, baseball game, and everybody in the stands making calls? Come on, ref, that was a foul. Oh, she was out by a mile. Come on, Blue, open your eyes. Like everybody's calling out from the stands, but nothing anybody says 
has any bearing on what actually happens to the players in the game. Today we're in this series called Jesus is Greater. And we've been studying this book of Colossians. And in today's chapter, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, Paul is blowing the whistle on these self-appointed umpires. These wannabe referees who are trying to judge others on their salvation and their spirituality. And Paul's trying to say to these Colossian Christians, listen, they have no authority. Don't let them judge your salvation. Your authority is Christ. He is your head. He is sufficient and he is enough. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. I want to read this passage to you. But before we do, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to lead us into this truth. All right, let's pray together. And so Father God, right now we want to just really lay our hearts before you. As we lay our Bibles open, Lord, we, we want to... Lay our hearts and our minds open to you. God, I pray that you would be our teacher this morning, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate truth, that you would turn lights on so that we can see what is true and what's not. God, nobody wants to hear from a man. Nobody expects a man on a stage to change their lives. I don't expect that. I pray that your Holy Spirit does that. And so, Lord, we give you our hearts this morning. Would you give us your truth? Would you give us your spirit? Would you give us the gospel? And may we leave this place clearer in our understanding of the gospel, deeper in love with Jesus. So may Christ be exalted, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before I go on, I just want to say this. Welcome to everybody, especially if you're new and you're a guest. Um, I want to say as I read this passage, this is directed to Christians. To give Christians a, a greater clarity of the gospel. But this is also for non-Christians this morning. If you're here, you're invited or you're watching online and you don't normally do the church thing. I, I pray that you know this is for you too. And that you listen with open hearts. Because I hope that this gives you a greater clarity of what the gospel is all about. How, how it is that we attain salvation. And then I want to give you a chance at the end of this message to receive salvation. If that's what God is moving in your heart to do. Okay? So here we go, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 through 17. I'm going to read you uh, the first two verses, and it goes like this. Paul writes to the Colossians, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You could pause right there. And so I highlighted, highlighted some of these words for you in that passage. But what Paul is saying is, hey, listen, don't let anyone play spiritual umpire. Don't let anybody be a self-opposed referee in your life and call you out based on what you eat or drink, on what days and what festivals and what, what feasts you partake in. He says all of these are just legalistic. And they add no value. They have no substance in the eternal scheme of things. And so if you're taking notes, write this down. Here, here's the first takeaway I want to give you this morning. Jesus plus legalism equals nothing. Jesus plus legalism adds up to nothing at all. Legalism, in case that term is new to you, it's, it's the idea of just living by 
laws, right? You're, you're being governed by rules, do's and don'ts. And oftentimes, people will try to find their salvation by following all the rules. And remember, in, in this letter, as Paul's writing to these believers in Colossae, there's this teaching that's threatening the church. A, a teaching we call the Colossian heresy, and it had all sorts of elements of different religions and different philosophies. And here in these two verses, we see that it has a strong hint of Judaism because of its reference to Jewish law. So, for example, we know that in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, it lays out rules for dietary restrictions. What they're allowed to eat and not allowed to eat. And so the Jews were expected to observe these laws, these dietary laws. And then also in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, there's a chapter that lays out all the feasts and all the holy days. All these festivals that the Jews are supposed to observe and Paul's calling out these wannabe referees who are saying that these are the means to salvation. And if you don't follow these things, then you're not going to have a, a closeness to God, an intimacy with God, and you just might not be saved. And Paul's saying, no, listen, all these Old Testament diets and all these Old Testament days are only shadows. They're only shadows of things to come. And I, I love that analogy. That Paul uses. He calls them shadows. I'm standing up here and you probably see the shadow that's on me. There's a shadow of this table on stage. But what is a shadow? A shadow is nothing really. It has no reality. It has no substance. I can't grab the shadow. But what a shadow does, if I follow it along, if I follow a shadow, it will lead me to the, to the substance. To the thing that is real. It leads me to reality. But the shadow will come and go. But the substance that it points to, this is here to stay. And so in the Old Testament, we know that the Old Testament, Paul says, is a shadow that leads to Christ. If you follow the shadow along, what should it lead us to? It leads us to Jesus. It leads us to Jesus. And everything in the Old Testament was foreshadowing the need of a Messiah. The need for a Redeemer. And he is Jesus. Let me just show you this. Leviticus 23. I want to show you some of the holy days, the festivals and feasts that the Jews were expected to carry out or to observe. For example, in Leviticus 23 verse 5, it talks about the Passover feast. It's the one, of, one of the biggest Jewish feasts. And if you remember from history, the Passover feast was that feast where the Jews each year are to remember the time in history when God told the Israelites to put the blood of a perfect spotless lamb over their doorpost. And when the Spirit of God came over the land, if he saw the blood of the lamb covering them, then they would be spared. They would be saved and essentially set free from slavery under the Egyptians. And so this feast every year was to commemorate that time in history, but it's to also point them forward because one day a Messiah will come. Jesus, who the Bible calls our Passover lamb, and the blood of the lamb that covers us, his blood covers us, will essentially save us and set us free from slavery to sin. It was pointing to something. The next feast talked about in Leviticus 23, verse 6, talks about the feast of unleavened bread. This was to follow immediately after Passover, and they're supposed to eat this, this bread without leaven in it. 
And in the Bible, leaven represents sin. So eat this bread without leaven. The Bible calls Jesus our bread of life. The scriptures say he is the bread of life without sin. And so this feast of unleavened bread is to show that one day one will come who is spotless and sinless, who will be our perfect sacrifice. And right after the the unleavened bread was the feast of first fruits. This is Leviticus 23, verse 10. And in the feast of first fruits, three days after Passover, so when the people are to take the harvest, the first fruits of the harvest of the crops, there's to offer it up at the temple of God as an offering to the Lord. Guess who rose three days after Passover? On the actual day, the day of first fruits, guess who rose? Jesus Christ resurrected. And the Bible calls them in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, Paul says explicitly, Jesus is the first fruit from among the dead, meaning he was the first to rise and to be offered up into heaven. And we are sure to follow. And so you see everything in the Old Testament, like God's got this whole thing rigged. Like he, like he wrote this thing, it is from him, and he wrote it to tell a story of coming redemption. A coming redemption that's going to come through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so the Jews were to annually practice these things to constantly remember the story that God is telling so that when the Messiah comes, they would know exactly who he is and what he has come to do. All the things in the Old Testament foreshadow the substance, the reality of Jesus Jesus is our substance. He's the substance of our salvation, and he is the substance of our faith. And Paul's saying, don't get legalistic about these laws. Yeah, it's there, but don't get legalistic about these because these laws can never save you. But what these laws point to is the one who can save you. They point to Jesus, and Jesus alone can save you. So remember this, Jesus plus legalism adds up to nothing. Legalism won't save you. But not only were the Colossians being judged by these spiritual umpires, these wannabe refs by their legalism, they're also pressuring them with asceticism. Right? Go back to verse 18. I want to read that to you again. He says to them, actually, let me read it to you for the first time. Verse 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Circle that word. And the worship of angels going into detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, which is Jesus, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through his joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. So don't let them judge you on asceticism. And what asceticism is, is the religious practice of self-denial. It's denying yourself from the things of this world, the things that the flesh desires, like, like food and fun and sex and, 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 and all the things that our flesh loves on this earth. Paul says, listen, don't let anyone disqualify you. In other words, don't let anyone play judge and take away your prize that already belongs to you, your, your prize of salvation, just because you don't practice the asceticism that they do. So write this down. Number two, here's another takeaway. Jesus plus asceticism equals nothing. Jesus plus asceticism adds up to nothing. Now, 
Asceticism can be found in every major religion. Practiced by religious people all over. Catholic priests will practice celibacy. They won't get married. Nuns will, will try to hold to abstinence, not having sex. Buddhist monks will wear plain robes instead of fashionable clothing. Hindus will deny worldly goods. And all the time, these things are done to achieve a higher sense of spirituality. A, a, a transcendence, a, a heightened spirituality even a closeness to God if God is what they believe in. But even in Christianity, there's asceticism. Right? When we fast, when we go on prayer retreats, when we give our wealth away to the poor, those are examples of asceticism. I, I highly respect guys like David Platt, who, who's written the best-selling book, Radical, and Francis Chan, who wrote the book Crazy Love, another best-selling book, and these two guys have inspired me and they've challenged me and I'm sure many of you as well. And they've challenged us to, to give up the vain pursuits of this world. To not chase after temporary things but to keep focused on what's eternal. And I, I love Francis Chan's example. He not just talks the talk but he walks the walk. When, when he actually capped his own salary at $36,000. When he was leading a mega church. A mega church of thousands of people. He capped it at 36,000 so he could give the rest away to the kingdom. And though he made millions and millions and millions of dollars from his best-selling book sales, he never saw any of it because he just funneled it, all his royalties, to organizations helping victims of sex trafficking, victims of poverty. He doesn't see it. It just goes out to the world. I admire that. David Platt, in his book, he challenges Churches and Christians who have their big buildings and big stages and bright lights to not chase after temporary things when there are millions of children suffering in this world without Jesus. I love their examples. It's very admirable that they would give up so much and deny so much for the cause of Christ. But I think the concern is when other Christians read their books and see their examples and walk away questioning their own salvation. Am I really saved if I don't look like that? And even if Francis Chan and David Platt aren't trying to preach a gospel and aren't insisting salvation comes from giving everything up, even if that's not their message... We have to be careful that in our own hearts and in our own minds, we don't create this poverty theology. That we don't subscribe to a poverty gospel any more than we would subscribe to a prosperity gospel. I think a lot of us despise a prosperity gospel that teaches that if you have health and you have wealth, that's a sign that you are blessed from God, you are saved by God if you have health and wealth. And so a lot of us reject that teaching and we swing hard the other way. And we, we create this poverty gospel saying if I give everything away and I deny everything, then I'm saved. Then I'm righteous. And we try to earn righteousness by self-denial. And I want to say you are not more or less saved because of what you have or what you don't have. You are not more or less saved because of what you give or you don't give. Now let's be clear. Can the things of this world distract you? Can the things of the flesh distract you from your devotion to Christ? Absolutely they can. 
And so it's not wrong to deny yourself and to give up things to follow Jesus. Christ calls us to do that. He does. But don't let anyone, including yourself, don't let anyone judge your salvation based on how ascetic your life looks or not ascetic your life looks. Because Jesus plus asceticism equals nothing. You're not saved by how much you have or don't have, how much you give or how much you take. So that's another thing that was threatening them. Not only does Jesus plus legalism equal nothing and Jesus plus asceticism equal nothing, these spiritual umpires were also emphasizing this kind of mysticism that they needed to experience. Mysticism. In verse 18, he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and, here's the examples of mysticism, and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Now, mysticism is defined as pursuing a deeper or higher spirituality through subjective religious experiences. So not relying on the objective word of truth, but on these subjective experiences. And that was a sign of your righteousness or your spirituality. But write this down as a third takeaway. Jesus plus mysticism equals nothing. Jesus plus mysticism equals nothing. In previous previous messages, we talked about this Colossian heresy, this false teaching, and how there is this idea that because the supreme almighty God is so pure, he's spirit and pure, he can't have anything to do with the evil physical world because everything physical is evil. And so the, the, the thought was that he must have sent forth these emanations, these spirit beings he sent forth out of him, and these spirit beings would emanate from each other, each one with a little less divinity than the one before and so I don't know if this is completely accurate, but when I read about these emanations and this idea, I always think about these dolls. You guys remember these dolls? Right? Those big dolls, you open it and there's a smaller one, you open it and there's a smaller one, open it, there's a smaller one, and down the line, it's almost like these emanations have a little less divinity, a little less power than Supreme Almighty God. And then the belief was that Jesus was one of these emanations down the line. In fact, some, people, some of these uh, false believers believe that Jesus might have been the last emanation sent to take care of the physical evil world. Because supreme God can't touch it. And so Jesus was sent to be that emanation. Which would imply that, that there are higher spirit beings than Jesus. Higher angels. Worthy of more praise. Deserving of more worship than Jesus. And so there was a lot of angel worship. In 2008, there was a, a preacher named Todd Bentley, and he was invited to speak in Lakeland, Florida. They were having revival meetings at this church, and so Todd was invited to come and preach. And he would hold these, these hyper-charismatic meetings where he would heal people 
of their diseases and their infirmities. And the, the, he, he, would, he would speak in tongues and he would share of visions that he's been having and he would give prophetic words. And I, I, I literally listened to some of his stuff and he tells a story of how the Holy Spirit told him to go up to this elderly lady who needed healing and just kick her in the face. That's what he said. He says, so I took my biker boot and I kicked her in the face and I healed her in Jesus' name. He said, the Holy Spirit told me. And then I, I heard him tell the story where he says, I started choking this guy. Choking him because the Holy Spirit told me to choke him to get the demon out of him. Another guy he had knocked over to heal him and knocked the guy's tooth out. His tagline was, bam, he would heal him and bam, you're healed. Took this lady who had crippled legs, couldn't walk, and he said, I started banging her, her legs against the stage like bats. And he's doing all this stuff, and then all of a sudden, during these revival meetings, he starts sharing about how he gets visitations from an angel named Emma. And Emma visits him. Talks about all these visions and revelations he has. He says in the church, he sees her, he sees her floating in this room and, and he could see her and she's, she's floating up and down the aisle. She has a bag and she's sprinkling gold dust everywhere because it's a sign of God's revelation and his, his financial breakthrough that he's going he's gonna to bring upon the church. All of a sudden I started getting into angels and people came, came flooding to hear about these experiences he was having. Here's a little sound bite from one of the messages he was giving about why he's talking about angels. Listen to this. You know, I told the Lord, why can't I just move in healing and forget talking about all that other stuff? He said, because, Todd, you got to get the people to believe in the angel. I said, God, why do I want people to believe in the angel? Isn't it about getting the people to believe in Jesus? He said, the people already believe in Jesus, but the church doesn't believe in the supernatural. The church has no problem believing in Jesus. What we don't believe in is the supernatural. We don't believe in angels. We don't believe in the prophetic. We don't believe in some of what's going on. And I'll tell you what. We need to have an awakening. Listen, I believe in angels. I do. But what Paul is warning against is verse 18 against these people who... Talk about the worship of angels and go on and on about these revelations that it takes away from Christ. And this became an agenda where he started to emphasize this visitation and these spiritual experiences he was having with Emma. And some of us will hear something like this and we'll say, well, he sounds like a weirdo. Sounds like a wacko. No Christian's going to give him any time or attention. Well, that revival at Lakeland was supposed to last for one week. But 30,000 people poured into that church because they heard of what was going on. 30,000 people that first week, so they did it for two weeks. And then they did it three weeks. And they kept going. People kept coming. They did it for four weeks. And then three months into it. They estimated over 400,000 people from over 100 nations flew into Lakeland, Florida to experience this outpouring of what they believe was God's blessings and the Holy Spirit of God. That Lakeland revival went from April 
to October. Lasted seven months, night after night after night, because the people kept on coming. People we know personally flew from the South Bay to Lakeland, Florida to be part of this spiritual experience, convinced that there was an outpouring. And I want to say that mystical experiences can draw even the most sincere Christian. There's something attractive about mystical experiences. And yet there's great danger. I've had friends who have gone to similar meetings Leaving feeling confused or discouraged about their own salvation. Warning, am I even truly saved? Because the guy told me that if I don't speak in tongues, then I don't have the Holy Spirit. And you have to have a proof of the Holy Spirit manifested in you, and that comes through speaking of tongues. And I've had to convince my friends that that doesn't determine your salvation. And yet there's this confusion and discouragement because some spiritual umpire told them that's what it takes to be spiritual or saved. And it was against this heresy that Paul writes to the Colossians, don't let anyone disqualify you from the prize that you already possess. Don't let any judge take that away from you. They have no authority. And he says that these mystics and their sensational experiences do nothing but puff up their own heads and yet they are disconnected from the head, who is Jesus. And as Paul, Paul's point is, when it comes to true salvation and spirituality, Jesus plus mysticism adds up to nothing. Adds up to nothing. Jesus plus legalism, Jesus plus asceticism, Jesus plus mysticism doesn't save you. And here's his conclusion, verse 20 through 23. He closes... This discussion, it says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so here's Paul's summary. Here's his point. He says, listen, you died to all of that and you joined with Christ. You put your faith in Christ and so you've died to the elemental spirits of this world. In other words, you have separated yourself from the spiritual powers of this world that governs its principles, the doctrines of demons that tell you that you have to do this or do that to be saved. You died to that, so why would you go back to them? You already know what saves you. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Those rules and those regulations and those rituals seem religious, they look wise, but he's saying they don't actually make you more saved or spiritual. It may look righteous on the outside, but doing those things do nothing necessarily to your heart on the inside. It looks righteous on the outside, but your heart could still be unrighteous on the inside. I mentioned earlier about Francis Chan and how he capped his salary at $36,000. I heard up until the time he left the church. And I remember being in my 20s. I was working full time and just being so inspired by that. I was like, man, that's amazing. 
And I wondered if I could do it. And I remember I was working a full-time job, and so I calculated how much I needed to live. And at the time, I was living at home with my mom and dad, and they were, they, I didn't have to pay rent, and my mom would cook for me every day. And so I didn't have a lot of expenses. And so I calculated, I think I could, I could live on $30,000 a year. All right, so I, I think I could do that. And so I was going to cap my salary at $30,000 a year and give the rest away to the poor, to the homeless in L.A., and I was like, dude, that's, that's cool. I feel good about that. And, and so I, I remember sharing with my mom and dad I, I, this plan. I said, mom and dad, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to cap it at 30000 and give the rest away to the poor. My dad was a pastor at the time. I'll never forget what my dad said to me. When I shared that plan with him, he said to me, he says, wow, you are so selfish. I said, what are you talking about, selfish? I'm giving it away to the poor. But he says this. He says, have you ever once thought about taking care of your family? We fed you your whole life. We gave you clothing your whole life. We gave you shelter your whole life. We still feed you and give you shelter. Have you ever once thought about taking care of your family? All you're thinking about is yourself. And I was like, whoa, I don't think you're right, but man. Like, I had to really evaluate. And what I really appreciate my dad causing me to stop and evaluate what are the motives of my heart. Like, why was I doing this? Was it to give my sense, myself a sense of spirituality, of, of righteousness, maybe self-righteousness, that if I do these things, then God must be so pleased with me? Who am I really thinking about? Am I really thinking about people beyond me, or am I thinking about myself? And I really had to stop and evaluate that. And I appreciate that because in the same way, church, may we always evaluate our motives. May we evaluate our religiosity. Why do we do the things we do? Why are you here this morning? Why do you worship? Why do you read the Bible? Why do you serve? Why do you offer? Because the reality is if we don't do things, if what we do is not centered on Jesus if it doesn't point us back to Jesus, if it isn't for the glory of Jesus, if it isn't to help us fall more in love with Jesus, to deepen our faith in Jesus, then it is of no value. If all it is is to gain a sense of self-righteousness or superficial spirituality. Man-centered religion cannot and will not secure your salvation or enhance your spirituality. So Jesus plus legalism... Jesus plus asceticism, Jesus plus mysticism equals nothing. Now, you might be thinking, well, this is pretty irrelevant to me. Because <laughs> this is 2,000 years ago, and you're, you might be thinking, well, I don't struggle with angel worship, and I don't struggle with obeying Jewish festivals, and I don't struggle with what to eat or what to drink. And that's not your daily struggle. But let's, let's bring this home, okay? Let's bridge the context from this passage written 2,000 years ago in the first century, let's bring it home to the 21st century. How does this relate to us? Well, I want to ask you this question. How would you fill in this blank for your life? Jesus plus blank equals salvation. This is the application point. I really want you to think about this. How would you fill in that blank? Let me rephrase it like this. For everyone listening, everybody, if you were to die tonight, this was your last day on earth. Do you know where you will go? 
do you know with certainty that you will be in heaven experiencing eternal life? Think about that really for your own life. What would your answer be? And if you say, yes, I will be in heaven, I want to ask you why. And if you say, no, I will not be in heaven, I want to ask you why. And if you say, I don't know, I'm not sure, I'd ask you why. Why, why aren't you sure? And some of us, as, a, as we're evaluating that right now, and I really challenge you to practically do this right now, maybe you're starting to think about the answer based on what you're doing in your life or what you've done in your life. And some of you guys will answer, well, I think I'm going to heaven because I'm actually, I'm a pretty good person. Like, I've never been to jail. I've, I'm a pretty upright citizen. I, I obey the laws most of the time. And then some of us will say, well, I did get baptized in this church just two years ago. That should have sealed it, right? I got baptized. And some of you guys are thinking, well, yeah, I think I'll go to heaven because I attend South Bay Community Church. That's a Christian church. It's not Mormon church or a JW church or a Catholic church. It's a Christian church, and Christians go to heaven, right? So I'm pretty sure I'm saved. Some of you guys are like, man, I, I lead a life group. You better hope I'm saved. I hope I'm saved. I serve in two ministries, and I'm going on a mission trip to preach the gospel. I'm pretty sure I'm saved. And if your answers are sounding a little bit like that, I want to remind you that those are all things that you do. Those are all performance-based answers. I'm saved because I do this. And performance is at the very heart of legalism. Doing things to earn your salvation. Maybe some of us, as you're evaluating that answer, you're, you're, you're answering based on not what you do, but what you don't do. I don't get drunk anymore. I've given up, I've given up alcohol, and that used to be a demon in my life. Or I, I don't sleep around anymore. I, I've committed to abstinence till I get married. Remember, you're like, I, I, I try to fight my porn problem. I've stopped smoking. I don't cuss anymore. I say, heck, instead. I say, darn, you should, you should have heard what I used to say. And so you're like, I'm, I'm cleaning up my act, and if you've cut stuff out of your life, I want to say that's great. We encourage that. Keep going. But those are all things that you abstain from, kind of like ascetics, where you're denying yourself from things that you used to do, and you're choosing not to do it. But not doing is also a performance-oriented word. It's an action. I'm not doing this. I'm resisting that. I'm fighting against that. And you're abstaining. But that's performance. And so maybe your equation, when I ask you that, in general, would look like this. Jesus plus my performance equals salvation. And that's what's giving you security. That's your equation. Jesus plus performance equals salvation. But the reality is Jesus plus my performance doesn't equal salvation. Jesus plus performance equals nothing. It adds up to nothing. The reward of salvation is not given, friends, by what you do or what you do not do. 
It's not based on what you do or don't do, but on what Christ has done. It's what Christ has done. It's done. Not by your works, but by the work of Christ performed on the cross. Not by your purity, but by the purity of our spotless lamb whose blood passes over us and covers us and saves us. He died and he is enough and he is sufficient for our salvation. There's nothing you need to add. There's nothing that I can do to add to what he's already done. And I have to say that because we are performance-oriented people. We live in a culture where a society where performance is so important. Even the disciples are trying to ask, what do I have to do? John chapter 6, verse 28 and 29, they say to Jesus, their master. Then they asked him, verse 28, what must we do? That's a performance word. To do, another performance word. The works, another performance word that God requires. What must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe. To believe in the one he has sent. What Jesus is saying, the only thing you can do is nothing at all but to believe in the sufficiency of Christ. The only work you could ever do to secure your salvation is to trust that Christ did the work for you on the cross and it is finished. It's done. Don't add to it. And so listen, we shouldn't obey laws for our salvation. But hear me out, we should obey laws because of our salvation. We don't deny ourselves to try to gain some prize, but deny yourself, yes, because of the prize you already have, that you already possess. Anytime we think that Jesus plus my performance gains me salvation, we're living by the very philosophy that Paul is calling out. He's speaking out against. He's blowing the whistle on that kind of philosophy. It's like saying Jesus isn't sufficient, so let me make up for his insufficiencies. Jesus isn't powerful enough, so let me add power to Jesus and his works with my work. And if we ever feel that we need to add to Jesus or help Jesus out a little bit as if Jesus were enough, that we don't get Jesus at all. That we don't really believe Jesus is able to save and we really have no saving faith at all. And so here it is. I'm going to put it up one more time. Jesus plus anything, anything equals nothing. Not salvation, not forgiveness, not heaven, nothing. But here is the bottom line. I pray that you take this home with you. Take it home. Take it with you to the grave. And I pray that if you do, you take it with you to the grave and from the grave to the sky. That Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Everything. All salvation all righteousness, all heaven, all of Jesus, all of God, your creator, all of it is yours. All the spiritual blessings are yours by grace through your faith in Christ and Christ alone. You're saved in Jesus and Jesus alone. And by faith in him, you are his son and you are his daughter. You are his son and you are his daughters. If you believe in that by faith, by relationship, not by religiosity. Amen?
Amen. Let me close with this. Speaking of daughters, uh, I love my daughters. <laughs> my wife kind of gets nauseous sometimes by how much I favor my daughters, and they could do nothing wrong in my eyes, and how soft I get when it comes to my daughters. How, how, many, how many girl dads do we have in here? Amen. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Girl dads, you know what it's like. And so I remember, like, just, like, my first daughter, Karis, like, I was so enamored with her, like, there was nothing she could do that was wrong in my eyes. And, and this would just make my wife, you know, sick at times. And so you remember when Moana came out? Moana, there's that one song, that theme song. And my, my daughter would always sing it. She, she'd sing, I wish I could be the perfect daughter. And I'd jump in and say, you are. And my wife would be like, ugh. Right? Like, like she was, right? And so there was a time when, like, there was this performance at school. It was a Father's Day performance. And uh, can I show off a little bit? Can I show you the video? Like, she's, she was a standout performer. Uh, she really stood out. She's the one in the pink. You can't miss her. She's got matching Crocs, and she's got uh, pigtails. Here, here she is performing for Daddy on Father's Day. I told you she stood out. She literally stood out because she just stood there doing nothing to honor her daddy. When everybody else was singing and dancing, she's just sticking her finger in her mouth. I asked her, I said, why didn't you sing for daddy? I I took off work to come see you sing. Why didn't you sing? She says, because I was eating my boogers. (laughs) That's literally what she said. No, she like literally did nothing. And so you know what I did? I kicked her out of my house. You're no longer my daughter. You don't belong in my home. Get out of here. Not, not at all. In fact, the opposite is true. Out of all the kids on that stage, guess who came home with me? My daughter. She came home with why? Because she's mine. If it were up to her, if it were based on her performance, she would have been out of my house a long time ago. But it wasn't because she was the, 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 the most talented, the best performer, the, the cutest, even though she was. It wasn't because any of that, but because I recognized her as my daughter. You're mine and you belong in my home. I'm the head of my household and you belong because you're part of my family. Not your performance. And Christ is the head of this house. He's the head of our body. And you've been joined to him by faith, nothing else. He recognizes you as his daughters, as his sons, because of Jesus and Jesus alone. You don't need to add anything because Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's bow and pray. And as you bow your heads, I want to, once again, I I said at the beginning... I wanted to make an invitation. 
Because there might be someone listening who for the first time is recognizing, man, there's nothing I've done in the past that disqualifies me from salvation. There's nothing I need to do from this point on to, to, to earn heaven, but to simply believe. And maybe God's working in your heart right now, in this very moment, and he's calling out to you saying, believe. Christ died for you. His blood covers your sins. You're forgiven. Today, I want you to be mine. So just believe by faith. And so I want to I pray for you. And I'm going to say the words out loud, but I want to encourage you. If that's you, just pray in your heart. Talk to God. And just sincerely talk to God and confess a faith in him. And pray something like this. Father God. I call you Father because I want to be your child. Thank you that somehow I came to hear this message today. And I want to say I believe by faith that Jesus Christ died for me, that his blood saves me by forgiving me. I pray that you would give me new life from this day forward. I know there's a lot to learn still, but help me to walk in a committed relationship with you. Help me to live for you now, because you are mine and I am yours. Thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you for eternity. Thank you for salvation. And God, it's together we join as a church to worship you that it is by grace, it is through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. There is no higher name, there is no greater power. And so it's with everything we have, with every breath in our lungs, we worship you and we cry out to you with praise. It's in Jesus' name.